Good morning. Today's scripture comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Fritz. Thank you, music team, for leading us in worship this morning. Good morning, Trinity Church. Good to see you here this morning. I'm Pastor Jeff Gangle. So glad to welcome you here uh, as part of our service today. And this is our Missions Moment Sunday, which means we're going to take just a moment right now to focus on one of our mission partnerships we have here at Trinity Church. We try to do this once a month so that you will get to know a little bit more about these uh, partnerships and these mission organizations that we support, but also so that you'll know how to perhaps get involved or at least pray more intelligently for these ministries. So our focus this morning is on the ministry of Young Life. Now, how many of you were, have been involved in some ways, either as a kid or as an adult in Young Life? Let me see if you, okay, a number of hands out here. I remember going to Young Life clubs when I was in high school back in Miami, Florida. So Young Life had an impact on me personally. We have a ministry right here in our own county, in Pickens County. And uh, this morning, it's our privilege to have our guest with us, uh, Bonnie Carlton, who's the director of Young Life in Pickens County, has been involved with, with uh, Young Life for 13 years. So welcome, Bonnie, to our service this morning. Thank you. Great to have Bonnie here. And so just to ask her a couple questions, it may be you're not as familiar with Young Life. Um, and so first off, maybe just start by telling us about the mission of Young Life, what it's about, what the staff and what you do, what your role yes, is with Young thank Life. Thank you, Jeff. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me here today. The mission of Young Life is to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and to help them grow in their faith. And for 80 years, the ministry of Young Life has been doing that. And for 21 years, the ministry of Young Life in Pickens County has been doing that. And so that looks a lot of different ways. We try to go where kids are and meet them where they are and become their friend and earn the right to tell them about Jesus. And we have gatherings. We have club and campaigners. Club is a big group gathering where kids can come and be together. That has not happened a lot in the last 10 months because of COVID and trying to keep kids and their families safe. But we are still content continuing to have campaigners, which is our smaller group Bible study, where leaders and kids gather together and we open the word. Um, and then we also took some kids, we take kids to camp once a year. In the school season, we go for a weekend camp 
And typically we go to Sharp Top Cove, which happens to be right here in our town in Jasper. And we got to do that in October, which was great. After not being able to gather, we didn't get to go to camp this past summer because of COVID. And so it was really great. It was a much smaller group. Typically at Sharp Top, there's four to 500 kids and leaders on a weekend. We took about, there were a total of about 140. Pickens took about 40 of those kids, and which was really great. They got to play and be kids and hear the gospel. And so that was great. And we have plans to go to summer camp this coming summer, which hopefully will still happen. Yeah. So that's obviously one way we can pray, which is my next question is, with it being a tough year, school's in and out, and and things you can do and can't do with the Young Life program. So how can we pray, and how can, if somebody here says, I'd love to be involved in a ministry that's so personal and direct to teenagers, how can I volunteer? How can I get involved? So tell us a little bit about that. So first of all, the pandemic has changed the way that ministry for us looks in the last 10 months. Because we're not allowed to go, typically we can go into the schools and show up at the in the high school or in the middle school at their cafeteria and sit with kids and hang out with them. We have not been able to do that this school year because schools are trying to keep kids and their families safe. But we do go to sporting events. We show up in coffee shops and places where we can meet kids and be with them. So leaders are still pursuing friendships with kids. Just looks a little different these days with the pandemic. Um, Ways, so you can pray, you can definitely pray for kids and for their families. We feel like right now more than ever, kids need their young life leaders. Middle school kids and high school kids are more isolated and alone. Some of them are spending all day by themselves and need people in their lives to point them to the truth. So you can pray for volunteer leaders and for kids and their families. There's other ways that you can get involved. Um, We really need young life leaders. Our middle school ministry is called Wildlife. You can figure that out for yourself. Middle school (laughs) kids are kind of wild, and we need adults from our community that are willing to invest in the lives of middle school and high school kids and walk alongside them and show them what the truth is. And so we need leaders. So if you're interested in becoming a young life or a wildlife leader, I would love to talk to you. We also have an adult committee. It's people from our, from our community that come from all walks of life, from different careers. They all belong to different churches in our community, and they're kind of the backbone of the ministry. They do a lot of behind-the-scenes things to help plan events, to help raise money, to pray, to encourage staff and leaders. And we are always in need of adults who love Jesus and want teenagers to know him. Hmm. Yeah, you know, if you've never been to the camp at Sharp Top Cove, you need to go visit sometimes. Beautiful facility, and uh, even though the camps may be scaled back a little bit, it's a beautiful spot for kids to gather and to hear about the gospel. So um, we're going to pause for just a minute. Ask, ask Bonnie to stay right here. Let's let's together let's pray for Bonnie, pray for Young Life, and pray for our time in the Word this morning. Bow your heads, please. Uh, Lord, we come together as a united body of Trinity Church this morning, and we uplift this ministry. Thank you that we can have a part of it, part of supporting it. And uh, we pray this morning for Bonnie, for the other staff, and for the volunteer leaders who are having to be creative in their ways of finding, reaching, 
being with the teens in our community right now, but their presence is so important, Lord, to have that witness of Christ around them. So I pray for freedom. I pray for relationship building. I pray for the gospel to go forward in, in these groups. And um, Lord, I pray that you would raise up others in our community, volunteers, group leaders who can help, who have a heart for these teenagers and um, are willing to give of their time and of their life to build in to the lives of these teens. So, uh, Lord, we just pray your blessing on this ministry today especially. And, uh, Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would, you would bless us as we listen to you, as we listen to your word. Help us to be responsive to the truth that we're going to talk about today and hear from your word. I pray that you would help us to be obedient and willing to to hear your way, your design for us as your church, as your followers, as disciples, and what it means to be disciples of Jesus. So, uh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you as we go to this time in your word. I pray that you would speak through your spirit to us, and uh, I pray that you'd help me in my words to accurately, rightly communicate what needs to be said this morning, um, and, and that you would encourage our spirits to live out our faith for you so that others will come to know you too. And this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Bonnie. Well, it was about six years ago, Beth and I were still living in Virginia Beach at the time, and I had a membership at a local rec center, and so I would go there on occasion to play racquetball, to work out in the, in the workout room and so on. And every once in a while, I'd walk through I'd peek through the door of the gymnasium there at the rec center, and I'd see some people playing this really strange-looking game. They, it looked like miniature indoor tennis of some kind. And I figured it was probably just one of those special programs for the senior citizens of the community, you know. And so I just kind of passed on by, go to my racquetball court. Well, some months later, I threw out my shoulder, messed up my shoulder, could not play racquetball, could not play tennis, and so I was looking for other things that I could do, and a friend invited me to come try out this new sport called pickleball. And I thought, that's a really strange name. I don't, I don't know about this. You know, what, this sounds like a kid's game or something. So I, but I was looking for something to do, and this was something he assured me my, my shoulder would be able to handle. And so I went to the gymnasium on one of the times I was at the rec center, and I just stood at the door, and I just kind of peeked in the door and watched what was going on. And what I saw was a fast-moving, highly competitive game over the sides of a tennis net, but with little paddles in hand. And I saw people of all different ages, men and women. I saw, I, I saw a lot of fun and laughter and communication back and forth. And I was drawn in. I said, this, this looks like fun. I went in and I played and I've been hooked ever since. Still love playing pickleball. So why do I tell you that story? We need to put some pickleball courts right out here in the... <laughs> no, that's not really why. Although that'd be a great idea. But um, I say that because this, what we're doing right now, should also be drawing people in. Our worship. The way that we worship. Seeing and hearing your voices, as I heard them this morning, proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Redeemer, our Mediator, all that we proclaimed about Him, 
is the message the world needs to hear, and our true worship will draw other people to the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning is our second sermon in this series of Discipleship 301, series we're calling Shaped by the Gospel. And so Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, we're looking at this book of 1 Timothy, and he instructs him how to lead the church that's in Ephesus. And from this letter, we're learning how the gospel shapes us into the disciples that God wants us to be, and then how we can help others learn to follow Him as disciples too. As we've said, that's the simple definition of discipleship, to follow Jesus and to help others follow Him too. And so, this morning, we're going to look at the second chapter of 1 Timothy. If you haven't done so already, please take your Bibles and turn there. If you're watching our service online this morning or following it later on and watching the archive, please do the same thing. Get your Bible out, pull it up on your phone, electronic device, follow along as we go through the second chapter of 1 Timothy. Now, last week, if you listened in or you, or you were here, you heard Jason present to us the, how the gospel shapes our beliefs our thoughts and our beliefs, and looked at a number of different places in this book. And that's what we're doing. We're kind of looking at different parts of this one book that give us guidance in our following of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to focus in on chapter 2 and see how the gospel shapes our worship. So that's our title. That's our focus this morning. Because if we're going to be disciples who make disciples, then we need to be experiencing corporate worship, and we need to be doing it God's way. Now, I realize as I say that, that this past year has made that desire a little bit more elusive. And that some of you are at home watching this now or traveling watching this now. Maybe some are either by their circumstances or by choice avoiding gatherings right now still. And, and even when we attend, I mean, we don't have the opportunities for close fellowship the way we used to. And so when we talk about corporate worship, we have to address that issue that we're dealing with right now. And, and here's what I want you to hear from me as your pastor. It's my desire that you are praying for and longing for those opportunities to come back when more so, even more than we're doing right here, right now, today, we can be joined together in corporate worship and corporate fellowship as God designed the church to be. So in the meantime, while we're coming to that, while we can't do as much of that as we want, be praying for it and longing for it. Please don't get so accustomed, and especially I guess I'm speaking to you that are watching our live stream, don't get so accustomed to video sermons and virtual church that that becomes satisfying to you. We need one another. We need the fellowship and worship of God's people together. So, just hear that. As we're talking about corporate worship, continue praying for and looking for and longing for worship together. So, let's see what Paul emphasizes about being disciples. Disciples whose worship has been shaped by the gospel. That's what we're looking at today. Here's our first principle. True disciples will worship through prayer. So, Paul clearly tells us that we need to make prayer a priority. Here's verse 1. First of all, then urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So right off the bat, he's talking about all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. We need to pray inside the church and outside the church. Pray for the saved. Pray for the unsaved. 
Pray for your friends. Pray for your enemies. The Bible calls us to all of that. And if we're not praying, then we're not really worshiping. Prayer is central to our worship, and which is why we devote time in our worship service, in our corporate worship service, for prayer. That's why I hope that in your personal prayer time, in your own worship time, as well as in corporate time, even while you're sitting here, while you're listening to the sermon, while you're singing, all of that becomes an act of prayer too. Prayer needs to be part of our worship. And what should we be praying for? Well, Paul doesn't mess around. He goes right to a fairly tough prayer point in verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Well, Paul spoke these words to Timothy. It's first century. The emperor of Rome is Nero, an evil, twisted man who, if it wasn't happening already, it was about to and, and continued on for a good while, persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. And surely Timothy, as he hears this, Paul, wait a minute, are you sure about this? Shouldn't we be trying to overthrow this emperor? Shouldn't we be discrediting him at the very least or just ignoring him and going on with our own stuff? No, Paul says, pray for him. Why should we do that? Why should we pray for secular leadership, government leadership? Look at verse 2 the next part of it, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, follow me on this because I think there are two sides of what Paul means right here. Uh, first off is what we typically talk, think about. We pray for our government leaders, our government as a whole, because a well-governed nation provides an environment for the gospel to thrive. And I think that's a legitimate prayer. We pray for peace and stability in our nation so that the church can continue to make disciples, so we can do what God's called us to do. It's not for our own safety and peace. This is for the work of God to go forward. And that's certainly legitimate. That's part of it. But there's something else here too. And this may even be more direct for us, and I think it's something we sometimes miss in this passage. I think Paul is also saying that we do this because when we pray in this way, when we are praying for government, for leaders in our country, we are exhibiting an attitude of godliness, of peacefulness. It's dignified citizenship. And Paul says that pleases God when we do that. He goes on to say that, actually, in verse 3. He says, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What, what is good? What is pleasing in His sight? It, well, when we, in corporate worship and prayer, pray. Pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our community. Pray for the lost. We're exhibiting God's character when we do that. And He's pleased by that. You know, which is why... This past week, we did what we did. We asked you, and you generously responded, writing out note cards, encouragement notes to uh, teachers and staff at Tate Elementary School. Now, it's not government leadership per se, but it is our community servants. And so you did that, and, and our Tate team put this together. We got a little picture of it, of how they put the cards together so beautifully, and, and uh, 
put a little Valentine candy to go with it. And those were delivered this into this past week. Every teacher, every staff member got something personal from you at Trinity Church. But why is that important? Because they need to know that in this very difficult year that it's been to be a teacher in the school system, that they are being prayed for, that we are behind them, that we are for them, that we are encouraging them. Because that's our job as Christians, and they need to know that. And that's a reflection of God's heart for them. You know, our worship is marked by prayer for our leaders, for our teachers, for our community. That's when we are modeling the heart of God. Notice verse 4. Who, speaking of God, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul is saying this is God's heart. Though not all will respond to Him and receive that gift, God's desire is that all be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So our heart desire should be the same, to see people come to a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. So to be disciples who make disciples, we must have God's passion for the lost. So when the gospel shapes our worship, we will be praying for people to come to a knowledge of the truth. That will mark our prayers. Paul reminds us even of what that truth is. What, what is it? What's this truth that they need to come to a knowledge of to be saved? Well, he puts it in this beautiful statement, in a verse and a half. It was probably a confessional statement of the early church. Verses 5 and first part of 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I and mean, there's the gospel in a nutshell, in a verse and a half. If our worship is shaped by the gospel, then we will consistently proclaim that gospel truth right there. And we did that today. If you were paying attention to the songs that you were singing, we were proclaiming that very truth. Christ as Savior, Christ as our mediator, our friend who prays for us. put it another way on the screen here, we believe in one true God, and the only way to God is through His Son, Jesus Christ, the unique God-man who died on the cross to pay the price for the sin of the world. There it is. If the gospel is going to shape our worship, then that gospel message, that gospel truth must be woven in and out of everything that we do, everything we say everything that we pray. That's the starting point for every disciple. It's the confession of every true disciple. This is the message we proclaim whenever we gather for worship. And our prayer is that others will come to the knowledge of this truth and be saved. So, to make this very personal right here, right now, who do you know who doesn't know the Lord Jesus as Savior? Who do you know who needs that truth? Who do you know who has not yet given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ? And if we're called on, as Paul says in this passage, to pray for them that they will come to that knowledge of the truth, then we should do that right here and now, right? So a lot of times we say here at Trinity, one of our sayings is stop and pray. So we're going to do that right now. Quietly, right where you're sitting, think of at least one person who you know who doesn't know Jesus and pray for their salvation right now.
Lord, in the quietness, <clears throat> you hear all these names being spoken, being prayed for. Lord, this, these are prayers that are close to your heart because we know it's your desire that these people we've just prayed for come to a knowledge of the truth and are saved. So, Lord, we pray that you will work in their lives to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you're reminded often to do just that. People that you know who need the Lord Jesus, to stop and pray for them. To be disciples who make disciples, it's got to start with praying for people to come to know Jesus so that they can follow Him too. And our worship itself must be a proclamation of that gospel truth so that others will be drawn in to know Jesus. But it's not just what we pray and what we proclaim. That's a lot of it. That's very important. But Paul goes on to remind us that it's also about true worship of disciples is about our hearts, about our attitudes, about our willingness to obey what God says. So here's the other point that Paul makes to Timothy in this chapter, number two. True disciples will worship in holiness and submissiveness. Worship in holiness and submissiveness. So he goes on to give some specific directives for both men and women in the church. And he speaks to the men first in verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in, the, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So follow what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that only men should pray. He's saying specifically that men should take the lead in corporate prayer. And although this raising of the hands was probably a fairly common posture for prayer in the early church, you can go to the catacombs in Rome and find pictures of it there. But Paul isn't saying you have to raise your hands when you pray. He's not talking about posture. What he focuses on is the heart. His emphasis is that we ought to be praying in holiness without anger or without argument. In, in other words, we need to make sure that our hearts are right with God and with others, our relationships with others, so that nothing hinders our prayer. So that when we come to worship and we come to pray, that our hearts are in the right place so that we can pray effectively. That's Paul's emphasis here. So I say to you, men of Trinity, do you hear this? Are you responding to this? This is to be a priority. If you're here as a man who's a disciple of the Lord Jesus, then this word is for you. God calls you to spiritual leadership. That's in your home, and it's also in the church, is what Paul is referring to here. And he's saying to us men, don't get caught up with arguing and complaining and other things that could distract you. Pray for others. That's to be your focus in worship. So when we come, we need to come with that attitude, men. And when we come together for corporate worship, coming here ready to lift up prayers for others. So whether you're sitting here whether you're at home right now and part of our worship service there, 
Men, are you praying? Are you praying for government leaders as Paul directs us to in this passage? Are you praying for your family? Are you praying for your church? Are you praying for your neighbors? Are you praying for your pastor who desperately needs it? I grew up in Kansas City, Kansas, first 10 years of my life. So the first and only professional football team I knew were the Kansas City Chiefs. It was a sad Sunday a week ago. <laughs> oh my goodness, they got shellacked at the Super Bowl. They did not play them like they can play. It was just pitiful to watch, especially as a Chiefs fan. But partway through that game, there was a point at which um, one of the defenders, defensive players for the Kansas City Chiefs, got all upset. I don't even know what happened. He got really uptight. He was, he was arguing with the other team members. He got up to Tom Brady and had a finger in his face. He was arguing with the referees. He went to his own sideline. He was upset and arguing with his own teammates. And at that point, I'm thinking, get yourself together. You're off the rails here. Come on, focus on the game. You're not playing defense. That's where your energy needs to go. And I think sometimes God looks at me, looks at us men, and He says, you're so distracted. Why are you upset and arguing, complaining about these other things? I need you here. I need you in worship. I need you in prayer. That's your responsibility as a leader in your home and in your church. This is a call to us men and a focus on prayer. All the things he said in those earlier verses about prayer apply to us, apply to all of us, but especially in our spiritual leadership, men. If we consider ourselves disciples, then we must be careful not to get distracted by things that irk us or upset us. We need to focus on worship and prayer. Well, Paul has a challenging word for women in the church, too. And in fact, these next verses are some of the most difficult and controversial in the entire New Testament. Just telling you that ahead of time. Oh, man, look at the time. I think we need to stop right here. Jason, just pick up these verses next week, would you? Now, let's look what Paul has to say. Women in worship, verse 9. Likewise also that women should, be, should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, please understand, as you hear those verses, Paul is not giving Timothy a dress code for the church. It's not like we're supposed to take this list of details out on the front step and say, uh, gold, pearls, braided hair. Nope, sorry, you're out of here. Can't come in. That's not the point. Remember the context. Remember the culture here. This is Ephesus. In Ephesus was the temple of Diana, full of priestesses who were probably dressed in these ways. So Paul is using this as an example. He's not making rules about gold and pearls and hair braids. That's not the point. He wants Timothy to teach the women that when they come together for worshiping God, it's not about outward gaudiness. It's about inward godliness. And he's telling them it's not about good looks. It's about good works. And that modesty must win out over vanity. It's the principle that is timeless regardless of society. And so that's what you, we need to understand here. Some throw out this passage because, well, that's all cultural. Some of the details may have been applied to that culture, but the principles are timeless. You're going to see why in just a moment. Here's, 
Here's the first call for women of Trinity. God calls you to character adornment. That's the principle. Character adornment. I know you get this, and I love this. I so appreciate this about our women here at Trinity Church because it's so evident. The focus on, the commitment to godliness and inner beauty. You're living this out. But I think what Paul is reminding us of, and he would ask you to keep in mind, is that the condition of your heart is more important than the condition of your hair. And it will always be the case. Yeah, next Sunday, everybody's going to come with hair out everywhere, right? (laughs) Pastor said we don't have to care about our hair. Character is most important. That's his point. Well, there's more. The next part's even a little harder. Verse 11 and 12, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, these verses have brought a a lot of anger against the New Testament, against the Bible, against Paul himself. Is this guy just a male chauvinist? He's putting women down. Listen, listen to what he's saying here. Take a closer look. The word here Paul uses for quiet or quietly two times in these verses is unfortunately in some translations of the Bible translated silent as if he means women keep your mouths shut. But that's not what the word means. In this context and in this chapter, in fact, all the way back to chapter 2, verse 2, he uses the same word when he's talking to all of us as believers and how we should act in society. And certainly Paul is not saying you have to keep your mouths shut because he wants us to speak the truth when that needs to be spoken. That's part of what we do as believers in our society. But he wants to do it, us to do it in the right way, to do it peaceably, civilly, And that's what he means here. It's peaceable versus an unruly responsiveness and outbursts. It has to do with one's attitude, not a shutting of the mouth. It's an attitude. So here's the second call, ladies. God's calling you also to attitude adjustment. Check your attitude. Make sure it's according to God's design, God's God's Word. And and so let me put this up next to you. So you know that this isn't just Paul... Uh, spouting his own stuff here. Notice what Peter says. We studied this a couple months ago when we went through 1 Peter. Here's 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Peter says almost the same thing to, to women. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, of the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Peter's focus is on the home, Paul's focus is on roles and responsibilities in the church. And he's calling on men to have the right character and attitude in leading and women to have the right character and attitude in submitting to that leadership. Which in no way means that women are inferior. And here's the mistake that's often made. Paul is not saying, the Bible does not say that women are inferior in essence, in value, in ability, in importance, in anything. And I don't, also don't believe Paul is saying here that women cannot ever teach or lead anything. In fact, we have great examples of that here just this morning. Bonnie is a wonderful example of the leadership she brings to Young Life Ministry in our community. Allison, great example of bringing leadership 
to our music ministry here at Trinity. And so many of you faithful women who are serving and leading as deacons, as ministry leaders in so many other capacities in this church. What he means is that God has given men authority responsibilities in the church that have not been given to women. And specifically, he spells that out in the very next chapter, which we're not going into, but in chapter 3, he gives the criteria for elders in the church who are to be men. God has given men and women different roles in the church. Now, let me put it in another context. When you get on an airplane, are you thinking that the pilot has the most important job? More important than the co-pilot or the navigator or, or the air traffic controller. If you think that, then you're making a mistake. Because what you're relying on to get you from point A to point B safely is that those people, the pilot, the co-pilot, the navigator, the air traffic controller, and a lot of others are doing their job and they're doing it together that each one is fulfilling his or her responsibilities in the way that they should. So it's not that one role is more important than another, it's that all of those roles must be fulfilled in conjunction with one another. Paul is telling us how to work together to fulfill our God-given responsibilities in the church. And here's the call, that men should submit to Him in leading that women should submit to Him in following. And if we're going to show Christ to the world as His disciples, then as men and as women, we all must submit to His order and His design. And Now, this is one of those moments when it's rather humbling to be a preacher of God's Word because what I can't explain to you is why God chose to do it this way. I, my job as a pastor is to tell you what he says and to give Paul's explanation. So here's what I mean. Verse 13, Paul's explanation. He takes us back to creation for the why. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. What I can't explain to you, though, is why God chose to make Adam first and then Eve and why God gave Adam and men a responsibility a leadership responsibility. I don't know the why. That's God's choice. That's God's design. And the important thing here is that it goes all the way back to creation. This isn't just Paul. It's not just about Ephesus. It's not just about first century. Paul says this is because of the creation order. What I do know is that God never shows favoritism in any way. That's so clear in Scripture. And I also know that men are no more valuable or important because of this choice that God has made, just different in the expectations that God has put on men. You know, for years in our society, you, you, we've heard the phrase gender equality, and maybe more in this past year than ever before, gender equality. And, and that's a valid discussion in secular society. But as I thought about this, you know, really, in God's mind, in God's perspective, there is no issue with gender equality 
Because if you go back to creation, if you believe the creation narrative, then Genesis 1.27 says all that we need to know very clearly. God created mankind in His image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. God created us in perfect equality in every way. So I would submit to you the issue, for, at least for us as Christians, is not gender equality. The issue is gender calling. That's what we struggle with. That's the, that's the sticky point for us because God has given a different calling to men and women in the church. It's not an equality issue. It's a calling issue. And in fact, Paul describes next what happens when we reject that calling, that order, because he goes back to the fall now here. Now he's in Genesis 3. Notice verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And, and again, you just read those words at first blush and say, wait a minute, Paul, he's, he's blaming Eve for the fall. It's all her fault. No, that's not what he's saying. Because if you read Paul in Romans chapter 5, he makes it clear that he puts the responsibility on Adam's shoulders. It's Adam, the first man. So what is he saying? Eve was deceived into sin by the serpent because Adam didn't take the lead and protect her and speak truth in that moment. Eve instead took the lead, chose to disobey God, and her husband followed her in that sin. Adam and Eve reversed the God-given order. They failed to submit to God. And they fell into sin and brought a curse on the rest of mankind. That's Genesis 3. And so Paul's reminding us of what happens when we fail to follow our God-given responsibilities. So what about verse 15? Well, we've gone this far. We might as well take the last verse too. <laughs> Although it's just as tough. And I think here is the lesson, or maybe, maybe this is the response. Maybe this is the resolution of it all, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, there's a whole lot of debate. You can read all different commentators, give you all different meanings of this, what it means to be saved through childbearing. We know it's not salvation in the sense that he's referred to up above in the chapter because it's clear, salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. So what is the saving? What's saved from what? Well, the context here is how Eve was deceived by the enemy. So I think Paul is talking about being saved from that deception. That's what he's talking about here. And that Eve and the women that would follow her are saved from that deception by raising children in faith and love and holiness. In other words, discipling them. And we come full circle here. Saved from this deception of the reversed orders Opposing what God had said, saved by bearing children, which though not all women do, certainly no men can do. It's a unique opportunity given to women, a unique role that involves nurturing and discipling and passing on to others who will learn to worship in holiness and submissiveness too. So, 
It's about worshiping ourselves in holiness and submission and training, teaching others to do the same, passing that on to the next generation. So as men and women, as disciples of Jesus here this morning, we must avoid that deception of the enemy that would reverse our God-given responsibilities in the church and instead let the gospel shape our worship and shape our response and shape our roles so that others will see Christ in us. We'll see that it's different in God's family. Thirty-nine years ago today was obviously February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1982. Beth and I were in our senior year of college. We went to some friend's wedding that afternoon. That evening we went to a seafood restaurant right out on the water in Miami, Florida. And I was getting ready to ask Beth to marry me. I was nervous as could be. I, would, I, don't, I don't even remember whether I ate or what I ate that evening. After we finished dinner, we went out. There were some fire pits out on the outside. I sat around those fire pits and I finally worked up my nerve to get down on one knee and ask Beth to marry me. I found a picture. We were able to get it digital from <laughs> those eons ago. And this is us on that night. Those little kids. Notice how Beth is holding her hand out there so you can see the ring. That night, 39 years ago today, which interestingly enough, Valentine's Day fell on a Sunday that year too. When I asked Beth to marry me, I didn't fully understand the commitment that I was making. Not just to her, I was committing myself to submitting to God's design, God's responsibility given to me to be the spiritual leader of our home. I didn't grasp all of what that meant, but that's part of the commitment I was making as I handed her that ring. And Beth probably understood a little bit better than I did because she was more mature than I was, I think, at that point. But even she could not have fully understood what she was doing and what she would meant and what she was committing to by saying she would submit to God's design to submit to her husband in that family, in our home. But that's what it was all about. When we make that commitment to get married, when we make the commitment to follow Jesus, we are committing ourselves to following God's way to living God's way, to be obedient to God's way. And sometimes that may be challenging. Sometimes that may be difficult for us. Sometimes we may not understand why God has designed it the way that He has. It's not for us to question. It's for us to be obedient. Because ultimately, discipleship is about submitting to God. Ultimately, worship is saying, God, I will do that your way. I will live your way. So we're going to close today with a song of humble submission and commitment. It really takes that and makes it very personal. 
And as we're singing and closing the service, I ask just to check your heart. Just Are you coming to God this morning as a follower? That's what it means to be a disciple, a true disciple. Are you willing to worship Him according to His plan, according to His design, in His way? Check your heart. Make sure you're submitting to your Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Lord, that is our desire this morning. We recognize that if we go our way, if we fight for our way, we will go the wrong way. We don't have to look any further than Adam and Eve to see that described vividly for us. So, Lord, I pray that you'd give us the, the hearts this morning to be obedient and submissive to you, that truly worshiping means that as disciples we commit ourselves and submit ourselves to your plan, your design, to the responsibilities and roles you have given to us as men and women in your family, in your church. And Lord, we need your grace, we need your help, we need your strength to do that. So this morning, even as we close, as we sing, may we come to your altar in our own hearts and may we offer up our obedience, our submission, our will to your will to truly be disciples who are following Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.